0: indeed, happy Father's Day, gentlemen. Um, In a courtroom, test cases are used to set legal precedent. Test cases are a legal action that's done to try to establish some kind of standard. A state may pass a law knowing full well that it will be challenged and, in fact, hoping that through those challenges and appeals, a standard will be set. The law will be defined more precisely. We've seen a number of states this year pass laws related to abortion, some permissive, some restrictive. In most cases, state lawmakers acknowledging that that they hope that this law will go to the US Supreme Court, that it will be used to establish some form of precedent. This morning, we are in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to see a pair of test cases, I would suggest to you. The Apostle Paul is going to hold out as evidence these two test cases that will build to the climax of chapter 2 that we'll see next week, which is essentially his verdict on this issue of the gospel. And these test cases will look at gospel belief and gospel practice. Paul is the one giving them to us, but um, at the center of each one is a different person. In the first test case, it is a young Gentile who is a believer in Jesus Christ by the name of Titus. And in the second one, it is someone more well-known to the church, a Jewish believer, the Apostle Peter. So if you turn to Galatians chapter 2, we'll look there. And before I read it, it's just important, I think, for us to remember the, the time and setting as, as this is going on, as he is writing this and as he is describing the things in Galatians 2. This, again, is Paul being somewhat autobiographical. He is going back to some things that he has taken part in in the past, and so he's going back to a point in time that is within the first 20 years of the early church. It is is less than 20 years since Jesus Christ has been crucified and has risen, and the church of Jesus Christ has been born. And so these are still formative years, local New Testament churches are still being planted. The gospel is still just beginning to reach out into new areas, and people are first hearing about Christ and coming to faith. There's no technology to move the process along. I think it's important for us to remember that because it's it's hard for us to imagine that 20 years after something started, there are still people who are not only hearing it for the first time, but who are wrestling through some of these truths and how the local church looks and what it's foundational principles are, and and that's all part of this. The the church is growing at this point by the word of preachers, the apostles, those who are traveling, those who are evangelizing, those who are taking the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this foundational era. In fact, Galatians 2, the events that that happen in Galatians 2, are unfolded for us back in the book of Acts. It, It either relates back to Acts 11 or Acts 15. Paul's not specific enough, but I say that just so that when you're reading Galatians, you understand that what he's writing about here is something that's very early in church history. This, he's going back to just formative days for these churches, and we'll see why that matters, because they're still understanding that certain issues are, are, are still trying to be hammered out, still at stake, not the least of which is being accurate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that at the end of the day, is what they must know and believe, and and all of these preachers have gone out, some like Paul, others, as we'll see, false teachers, and being accurate about what the gospel is is crucial. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Galatians 2 reminds us as believers in Jesus Christ that we must preserve and practice the truth of the gospel. We must preserve and practice, preserve the truth accurately, and practice the gospel consistently. I'm going to read Galatians 2, 1 through 10. This is the first part of this. Galatians 2, 1 through 10, Paul says, "'Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain.'" perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right. The Apostle Paul, prior to his conversion, is a Jewish rabbi who is rabidly opposed to Christianity. He is persecuting the Christian church. He is out seeking to arrest those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, particularly Jews who accept Jesus as Messiah and seek to destroy their lives. That's what he's doing. And then God appears to, to Paul as he is on the road to Damascus. It is an appearance, a revelation of Jesus Christ And Paul is dramatically saved. He is transformed in that moment on the road to Damascus. And the one who becomes the persecutor, who was the persecutor of the church, now becomes the one who is preaching the truth that he once sought to persecute. After his conversion, we know that Paul spent, he's told us already in Galatians, about three years in the region of Arabia, which would have been to the east and southeast of Jerusalem. It is a time period that we know very little about what Paul is doing during that time other than we presume being sort of mentored in truth. And as far as we can tell, because he continues to make this point, he had not encountered the other apostles. He was not being taught by the other apostles. There is, to some degree, Paul is is in discipleship with God in some way. God is teaching Paul truth, taking Paul's knowledge, extensive knowledge of the Old Testament, and now seeing its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he does that. He then makes a brief trip to Jerusalem. We've seen that already, to get to know Peter. If you look at the map, so This map, mostly Paul's journeys, Jerusalem would be just south of of the map, just on the bottom part. You go up to Syria, and you see Damascus, and then on up to Antioch in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, Tarsus in Cilicia, where Paul was from. Arabia would have been down further off, down to the further southeast corner. Um, He goes to Jerusalem. Briefly, he talks about a 15-day stay there, encounters Peter during that time, and then is gone for more than a decade up into Syria and Cilicia where he is preaching, where he is actively involved in the church at Antioch. You see a lot of the arrows and lines moving in and out of Antioch because that sort of becomes the the base of operation from which he goes forth and proclaims the gospel to Gentiles. So when he says at the beginning of Galatians chapter 2, then after 14 years I went up again, he's probably talking about from his conversion. It's been 14 years now, and this period of time has passed. He has spent most of that time alongside Barnabas in the church at Antioch, serving and going out from there and and preaching from there. Verse 2 says he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Jerusalem's always up in the New Testament, whether it is geographically up or not, it is always just referred to by the New Testament writers as up because it is sort of the the centerpiece city, the sacred city, if you will. And so they're always going up, even though he's going from Antioch and Syria, we would say down to Jerusalem. He describes it there as up. So he's going to Jerusalem, and he says it's because of a revelation. doesn't tell us in this context here what that revelation was, how God led him, It seems to line up somewhat with Acts chapter 11, where at the church in Antioch, a prophet by the name of Agabus comes up from Jerusalem, and he comes and gives prophecy that the Spirit had given him of a famine that was coming, this terrible famine that was going to come across the land. Uh, And so Acts 11.29 says, so the disciples, this is the disciples in Antioch we're talking about, determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The the, the idea is that when there's famine coming, the people that are likely to get hit the hardest out of it would be these Jewish believers in the region of Judea, those who felt the, the pains of being ostracized by family, by community, because they have gone after Jesus, and so they probably will struggle the most when this famine comes in. The church at Antioch has been established for a while, so they take a collection. and They send it with Paul and Barnabas and say, take this to the believers at the the church in Judea. That's probably where we are at the start of Galatians chapter 2. The mostly Gentile church in Antioch is now seeking to serve the mostly Jewish church, Jewish believers who are in Judea. At the same time as Paul is, is doing this and going around and preaching the gospel throughout Syria and Cilicia, we know from the book of Galatians, from the book of Acts, from other spots in the New Testament, there are false teachers who are going out. This is the, the way that, that that teaching spreads. It is, again, it's don't have internet, don't have written material easily passed around, and so it is itinerant preachers who go. And so as Paul goes and speaks the gospel, so too come false teachers who come in and seek to undermine what he's preaching. Um, And the gist of what we get from Galatians, and and we'll see also this in the the book of Acts, the gist of what the false teachers are doing is they are Jewish, and they are following Paul, and they are saying, okay, good that you're embracing this Jewish Messiah, but you've got to convert. Men, you need to be circumcised, and then you need to follow the the dietary laws and the rituals. You need to essentially become Jewish in order to then hopefully be made right with God. So you've got to follow this kind of sequence. We know this is happening. Acts 15.1 tells us some men came to Antioch from Judea. Remember, this is now Jewish teachers going to the Gentile church at Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there's the message of the false teaching. We hear you're believing in Jesus. We hear about this gospel thing that you're talking about, all well and good, but if you're not circumcised, if you don't convert over to Judaism, you are not going to be saved. That's, that's the heartbeat of what the false teaching is. That's their theme. And we can only imagine how much confusion this is causing. Put yourself in the shoes of, of these young Gentile believers. You are, you're not able to, to go online and listen to sermons from elsewhere and sort of compare notes. You don't have a New Testament in front of you that has the whole story unfolded. You are having to listen as these Jewish, most of them Jewish in origin, teachers come and preach to you about Jesus Christ the Messiah. Paul is a Jewish rabbi. These other Judaizers are Jewish rabbis. And you've got Paul saying, we are all sinners. We've rebelled against our Creator. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And Jesus came, and He died for sinners. He took the penalty of sin in His death on the cross. He died, and He rose again. Believe in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ and his work of salvation, and you will be saved. And then no sooner does he move on than, than you've got the false teacher saying, uh, well, okay, that's the starting point, but you've got to do this as well. It's, it's Jesus plus this. Uh, they've heard Paul, they've heard these people from Jerusalem, and they are struggling now. And in fact, verse 4 of, of chapter 2, we read it, says, yet because of false Brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Notice what Paul calls them, false brothers. They they didn't come saying, yeah, we don't want anything to do with that Christianity, that gospel thing that Paul is teaching. They came in professing to be brothers. We're we're with you. We're we're here to just sort of supplement Paul, to take it to the next level, if you will, of spirituality. And Paul says, no, they are false brothers. They may claim to be brothers, but they are not true. And in fact, he says, they're almost on a mission. When he says they slipped in to spy out our freedom to drag us back into slavery, it it, it helps us to understand what what is the point that is just driving these false teachers crazy. And that is Paul is preaching a gospel that says, trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be set free from guilt. You will become a child of God. It is, in the minds of these Judaizers, as they're called, it is too good to be true. If I, if I want to be made right with God, there's circumcision, there's dietary laws, there's feasts, there's observing the Sabbath. There's all of these things that I think that I, I should do, and then I'm still sort of hoping. I'm still thinking and, and, and what Paul says is, they just want to—they want to bind you back into slavery. They want to take the Old Testament law and they want to beat you over the head with it and, and turn it into a list of do's and don'ts and say, if you don't observe these, you're lost. And if you observe them, you might win God's approval. Paul is preaching freedom in Christ. Paul is saying, trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Not a license then to live as we please. Paul deals with that in Romans 6. It doesn't mean that we should go on and sin all the more. We should, out of gratitude and gladness for what he's done, respond with worship. We should seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We should still fight against sin, but it is at its core, the book of Galatians is saying, a gospel of freedom. You have been saved in order now to glorify God, saved by his grace. Essentially, they're saying, "Ah, we're going to fill up the rest of the teaching that Paul's not giving you. Here's, this would be a real test of age, here's, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Some of you are in my generation and know what that means. Some of you are going to have to Wikipedia Paul Harvey to get that. Again, think of the confusion now that, that these people are facing. What do we believe? And so Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. The the struggle here that that compounds all of this is Paul, we've seen in Galatians, has made a point of saying, I did not base my operation in Jerusalem. I was not sent by the other apostles. I didn't get this gospel from the other apostles. In fact, we've already read in chapter 1, I've only made one brief visit to Jerusalem. I encountered Peter there briefly, and then I moved on. Paul has intentionally said, I don't have ties with these apostles. What I preach to you is what God gave me, is what I got on the road to Damascus, and then whatever, however God disciples Paul and brings him to his understanding, Paul has been very careful to say that I'm not one of this, this group that you know I'm an apostle, but I haven't been connected with this other group of, of the 12 apostles. He's not diminishing them. He's trying to point back to say, This gospel, this message is from God. I am sure of that. It is he who gave it to me. You've now got these false teachers from Jerusalem who go to places like Galatia and, and all around and say, We're from Judea. We we know what goes on in Jerusalem. No doubt some of these false teachers are claiming ties to the apostles. We're closer to the apostles than Paul was. Paul, We never see Paul down there. They don't know who Paul is. They only hear stories about Paul, but he's never showed up. He's never run his message by everyone. He's just out there. We're from Jerusalem. So who are you going to believe at this point? And so Paul travels up to Jerusalem now as he says, he's got two things in mind. The one is the obvious one that he says, it's the collection for the poor. That's what he's been sent to do. Verse 10 of Galatians 2 says, they asked us to remember the poor. That's the very thing I was eager to do. Paul says, that's that's what I want to do is provide practical need from the church at Antioch to the church at Jerusalem and, and help the poor in that way. Paul's main purpose in his mind in going to Jerusalem is to crush the false teachers, This is an opportunity for Paul to go to Jerusalem and to put an end, or at least to put a a, a big mark on the the false teachers. Paul's not wrestling with the gospel himself. So when it says here that he I took this message that I proclaim among the Gentiles, verse 2, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, it's not as if Paul is thinking, yeah, I'm starting to wonder if I've got the gospel right, and maybe I need to go to the apostles and check and make sure it's right. He knows it's from God and he knows the gospel is right. What he's afraid of by running in vain is that these false teachers will keep gaining a footing and places where he has proclaimed the gospel and people have professed faith now turn against the gospel. And so he's saying, I I don't want to have run in vain. I don't want to have gone to Galatia, to you and to other cities, preach the gospel and have these other guys come in and destroy the work by teaching you something false. And so his intent now in going to Galatia is, is... Ultimately, to take this message and to undercut, if you will, the the false teachers. Paul doesn't need some official confirmation of the truth he's preaching. He got that from God. But the false teachers are attacking him on the claim of he's just sort of an off-the-wall rabbi. You know, I know he teaches you this, but we got a lot more connection. We're a lot more qualified. Our roots are in Judea. He's some guy from Tarsus. We've got a lot more qualifications and credibility in order to preach to you. And he's just some troublesome itinerant preacher. And so what Paul does is is wonderfully led by God's Spirit. He not only takes his gospel with him to Jerusalem to go and see the apostles, but he takes with him this young man, a young, uncircumcised, Gentile believer. Paul is going to use Titus now as a test case. Here is a young man who has come to faith in Christ, who has not been circumcised, is he a brother or not? What do you do? This is the test now to to establish the precedent. And so he says, verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, though he was a Gentile. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, here's the phrase, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you catch that last phrase if you're if you're highlighting in your text or you're underlining that phrase the truth of the gospel is one that he will use again down in verse 14 when he speaks about the instance the second test case and this one has to do with Peter it is the truth of the gospel that is at stake it's not Paul's reputation Paul's fame his credibility at this point it is the message and so when the false teachers are attacking Paul and attacking the message, Paul says, Fine, I'm going to take this uncircumcised Gentile, go down to the apostles, in fact, to the so-called leading apostles. He uses that phrase frequently in here, the the ones who seemed to be influential. He uses it several times in this passage. This is not Paul being derogatory about Peter and James and John. James and John the brothers, also James the the brother of Jesus Christ. He's not being derogatory or sarcastic. He's saying that in terms of the, the known church world, These are the leading names. When it comes to who the apostles are that most people presume to be sort of the leaders in that that church in Judea, they tend to think of Peter, James, John, those those are the ones. And he says, I went to them, and I went with Titus, so that, again, there, verse 5, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The Greek word for preserved is, is an intensified version of the word abide. It's the word for abide with a prefix on it, so it has the idea that, so that the gospel might be fixed permanently for you. I did this in order to set precedent, so that the gospel would be unquestionably, unequivocally established as true, and it would be firm. That's what he means when he says, so that the gospel might be preserved for you. I did this, I brought an uncircumcised Gentile so the gospel, the truth of the gospel would be permanently fixed in place. This is Paul intentionally seeking an opportunity to cut the legs out from under the the accusations of the false teachers and their mantra that we read in Acts 15, which was, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Paul goes, Well, here's the problem with that. (laughs) I took Titus. And I went to the other apostles, the ones that they claim to to be from or at least know or at least have some relationship in that area. I went to them, and I brought an uncircumcised Gentile. And did they make him get circumcised? Nope, not at all. They embraced him as a brother. They embraced the gospel that I preached. They extended the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and I. They affirmed everything I've known to be true because God gave it to me and therefore you have nothing to stand on. Had, had, the, had the apostles, had, had Paul shown up with Titus and the apostles said, ah, wait a minute, you've got an uncircumcised Gentile here, and we're a little concerned about that. This is, this is pushing some boundaries here, Paul. We think, that, we think this isn't good, then the false teachers would have appeared to win the day. But as it turned out, Paul says, they added nothing to my gospel. Instead, Peter and James and John all concurred that Paul's gospel was the true, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Titus did not need to be circumcised. He was a brother in Christ based on his profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saved by the grace of God, period. It is that argument that smashes the false teaching at this point. That's why he's writing this back to the church in Galatia, where where the churches where they are struggling with this and saying, folks, this this has already been put to the test. This stuff that they're telling you, we've already wrestled through this with the the apostles in Jerusalem, and there's no question. You are saved by grace through faith. This circumcision stuff that they're telling you is, is lies. It's been put to the test The men who would be regarded as the the seemingly the leading apostles have concurred this is the gospel that is being preserved for you. So any attempt by the false teachers to sort of circumvent Paul and claim that they had some inside line with the apostles has been shattered. By God's grace, Paul beats them to the punch by bringing Titus and them saying, nope, doesn't have to be circumcised. It is the gospel plus nothing. So for us, you and I most, most of the time are not engaged with people in conversations over circumcision, but for people today who would sort of deem themselves to be spiritual, what's the plus that so often gets put in there? Eh, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but I think you've got to do this. I think you've got to live a good life. You've got to pray some prayers. You've got to go to church or give some offerings or something like that. Listen, James is clear, faith without works is dead, that the evidence of a saved life is the works that come out of that life, our our glorifying, our worshiping God, our serving him, our serving in the local church, all of that is evidence, but it's not saving, it's not earning God's approval, it is faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Back many years ago, I think the first sort of method, if you will, of, of proclaiming the gospel that I had learned was something called evangelism explosion. Yet another thing that dates me, I asked this in the first season, there's a few people who have heard of EE before. But in evangelism explosion, one of the first questions was called a diagnostic question. Ask a person, if you were to die tonight, stand before God, and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And typically, you'd get all sorts of responses. A lot of years ago, when people would even engage in that form of conversation, now they probably don't even go with you to agree on the point of God or heaven anymore. But at least at that point in time, you'd get all kinds of answers. Well, you got to, I guess I'd say I was a pretty good person. You know, I didn't, didn't do anything terribly bad. I went to church once in a while or something like that. Listen, all of that is, is what Galatians is just shattering, those, those things that, that we do are expressions of a new heart, but the new heart comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel plus nothing. And so are you saved? If so, on the basis of what? If you start listing off, well, I, I did this, and I've done that, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, then you're missing it. Then you're falling into what the false teachers are saying. It ultimately comes down to, have I trusted in Jesus Christ? Am I trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sins? right? There's the first test case. The other one's a little shorter. Verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right, first test case is about gospel belief. This one's about gospel practice. This is about how you live out the gospel now as a believer in Jesus Christ. Here's Peter. And and, and it's important for us to see this because the gospel is not just a one-time Put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and then the gospel doesn't matter anymore. We we live in the good of the gospel. Our lives proclaim the gospel by how we live. We we live in the grace of the gospel on a daily basis. And so here in verse 11, the scene switches back. We're back in Antioch in Syria, home base for for Paul. Peter comes up, mostly Gentile believers. Peter sits down at the table, and he has a meal with them. He fellowships with them. He embraces them, and he is enjoying that fellowship. And then along come some Jews, probably Jewish Christians from Judea. And Peter appears to lose his mind for just a moment. And Peter gets up, and he leaves the Gentiles. Understand here, we already know about the problems of the false teachers. There were also problems in the early church church just like there were on the Gentile side trying to understand, sort through, establish the teaching, so you've got new Jewish believers who are also trying to understand, okay, how does all this relate back to the dietary laws and the things that we have seen in the the Mosaic law? What, What do we do with all those? And so they're still sort of navigating their way through this, and in fact, they've been taught... Prior to the cross, certainly, and and, and certainly carrying on by Jewish teachers that, the law was often used to build fences. And so the law sort of separated people and divided people, and so the law was used to say, listen... Gentiles are unclean. This goes back to God saying to the people in the wilderness, I don't want you intermarrying and and taking in all of these idolatrous people around you. I want you to preserve this truth. And so don't make yourself impure by going amongst all of the peoples of the earth. Rather, you hold to the the, the purity of the truth that God has given. The rabbis have essentially taken that and, and, and taken that to the extreme to where you're having a meal with a Gentile. You're unclean. You're impure. You're defiled by that. And so you've got Jewish believers, young Jewish believers, who are wrestling with these things. What now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, what can I do? What can't I do? What is my freedom in Christ? If you can remember back in the book of Acts chapter 10, when Peter is first sent to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, Peter's sent there to go and proclaim the gospel to Cornelius. And he does. And what happens? Cornelius and his household are saved, and Acts 10 tells us Peter grew hungry, and so he wished to have a meal, but he's torn. Can I have a meal with these these Gentiles in their house? And so God gives Peter a vision in Acts chapter 10, and in that vision, three times, God makes it clear that, yes, Peter, it's clean to you now. Okay, in Christ, this is, the law is fulfilled. You can kill and eat, Peter. Enjoy. Have bacon if you want at this point, right? It's a whole new world of freedom for Peter. But three times in that vision, God said to Peter, it's okay. Have fellowship with these Gentiles. Have a meal. So Peter knows this. This is what's so, what makes us just realize how much our hearts can deceive us when we see Peter now in Galatians chapter 2. Peter goes back to Judea after the experience Cor- with Cornelius and he tells them Gentiles are believing in Jesus and they've received the same spirit and it's this glorious news and in Acts chapter 11 verse 3 as he's reporting back to his fellow Jewish believers that Gentiles are now believing the response in Acts 11:3 from the, the Jewish Christians was you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them that's Acts 11:3. you're missing the big point guys they're believing, oh, you, you ate with uncircumcised. All that is to just say how troubling this was and how early this is, and they're still wrestling through these things and trying to decide what, what's right, what's wrong. So there's this lingering question in Acts 15. all begins with that, that Acts 15 one that we read, false teachers saying you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Elders, apostles, gather in Jerusalem... They meet and say, what are we going to do? What are we going to teach the Gentile believers? How do we straighten this out because of this false teaching that's gone out? And in the midst of that, they write a letter to the Gentile churches. James is the head of the Jerusalem church. And he says in that letter in Acts 15, 24, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, not not saying false teachers, they've gone out from us, and they've troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, in light of this, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And then he goes on with the rest of the letter. But but what James is saying is, listen, I understand you've got some grounds for confusion here. There have been Jewish Christians who have gone out from our midst and have come to you saying things we've never said, We've never told them to say, and they're causing confusion. No doubt that's what we're seeing here in Galatians 2 when it says this circumcision party, these people come from James, and all of a sudden Peter's intimidated by them. It's Jewish Christians who still are not experiencing all the freedom they have in Christ and understanding the relationship of Christ and the law, and they come walking in, and there's Peter having a meal with Gentiles, and they're like, Peter? Peter? this was unclean not that long ago. What are you doing? And Peter responds in a way that is not, we wish to say, is, is uncharacteristic, but we've read enough about Peter to know that he has a little problem sometimes with courage when it comes to peer pressure, a little bit of fear of man stuff, like we all do sometimes. And there's Peter, and there's this group of guys who've come up from Judea, and they're questioning what he's doing, and Peter gets up and leaves the table from the Gentiles. Peter's struggling with fear of others. John Stott writes, The same Peter who denied his Lord for fear of a maidservant now denied him again for fear of the circumcision party. He still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. That's the distinctive here. Peter's not wavering on the gospel of Jesus Christ. His theology has not gone completely askew at this point. It is his behavior. It is how he is living, his conduct. That's why verse 14 says... But when I saw that their conduct, this is now Peter and the others influenced by him, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter hadn't given up on the gospel. Peter was just now acting out of fear instead of faith. He's now being driven by this fear of man and what they think of me. And so he's, he's moving away. And Paul sees it, and he confronts him. To his face, he says, Peter did this publicly. He led others astray, including Barnabas. He he did the sin publicly. He did not practice the gospel consistently. And and so Paul is in his face publicly and rebukes him. This is a remarkable moment in early church history, and even more so the fact that it's recorded for us in Scripture, that there is this confrontation that goes on at the church in Antioch between Paul and Peter. There's a lesson here by application for you and I, and that is the the need to be people who speak the truth in love. The fact that when our brothers and sisters in Christ are acting inconsistently with the gospel, when they are living in such a way that their lives seem to be undermining the gospel message, we should, by God's grace, love them enough to go to them and speak the truth to them. Paul does it publicly because Peter's sin was public. That doesn't mean that every instance we're involved in is going to be public, but we need to love People enough to go to them and speak to them. But that's not the primary point. It's not the primary reason. Paul's not including that here to teach that point. That's just an application. Paul's teaching this primarily because Peter's withdrawal led others toward conduct that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Understand the issue here is by Peter disassociating with the Gentiles He's now making a statement about the Gentiles to all the people who are watching. Here is an apostle who is breaking fellowship with professed believers in Jesus Christ. He who was having a meal with them is now saying, nope, not going to do it. That's powerful. And, and so the question now is, to all of those who are watching and listening is, well, wait, if, if Peter's getting up and leaving the table, is, is there some way that I'm, I'm still defiled By having a meal with a Gentile Christian? Is there something defective about the faith of these Gentile Christians? Is there something to the dietary laws? Maybe we need to keep those dietary laws in place, and the Gentiles are the ones missing it. They've got faith in Christ, but they're not also keeping the right food laws too. All of that gets prompt, and that's why he says, the conduct was not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. They're all being led to this point that here is an apostle who is now suggesting that these ones he was just having a meal with now is at least putting the question in the air of, are they really brothers in Christ? If an apostle broke fellowship with them, what does that mean? And it's at that moment then that Paul opts to use Peter as his next test case. Just as he has used Titus to prove belief in the gospel, he's now going to use Peter to show practice in the gospel and what living the Christian life looks like. His, his thesis that he's getting to, his, his verdict that he's getting to is the end of chapter 2 when he says, you are justified by grace through faith, not by circumcision, not by keeping dietary laws, not by observing the Sabbath, not by holding certain feasts. You are justified by faith, by grace through faith. And so that's why this is so crucial that he go ahead and confront Peter because whether it's circumcision or dietary laws or any other man-made hurdle, any other man telling you, well, you need this too, then you are adding something to the gospel. And if you do that, you nullify the gospel of Jesus Christ. You take the value of the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, "Mm, it's not enough. It's this much, but it's not the full thing. You've still got to do something else. And you undermine the gospel of grace and freedom. That's Paul's point here. Peter, by his life is being inconsistent, and he is not living the gospel that he believes. He's now questioning these men because of their dietary habits and their cleanness. All right, let's apply this. You and I, again, probably won't end up this week in conversations with colleagues about circumcision or dietary laws. You probably won't have questions about whether that pork is legit or something like that. But here's the question. What what are the things? What are the points in your life where your words or your actions or your thoughts are undermining the gospel that you believe? Where are the places where exactly what Paul's talking about when he talks about hypocrisy, where your life is not matching up with the gospel that you believe, and where that inconsistency is causing someone who's either a young believer or an unbeliever to go, huh, is that, what, is that what this looks like? Is that what this Christianity looks like? I mean, that gets down to the, what are the jokes and the stories you you laugh at with your colleagues at work? What are the things you do on Friday night with your friends? Dads, it's Father's Day, got to give you one here. What, what is it like when you, you come home from work? Are your, are your children experiencing the grace of God when you come home after a hard day and you're, kindness toward them? Is your wife experiencing the loving service of Jesus Christ? If, if we believe that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is of grace, then that, that's to be reflected in our lives. And, and, and I think the thing we need to take out of this from Peter is, where is my life not showing conduct that is in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ? as he says there to them in verse 14, their conduct was not in step. Their conduct was not in line with the gospel. Here's the gospel, and here's my life wandering over here in in, in some kind of sin or, or some kind of negligence of doing what I know to do in those situations. Tom Schreiner writes, none of us lives a solitary life. Our sins always have an effect on others. From the children in our homes to the society around us, people see some reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. It is not perfect. Peter is a marvelous example to us of the grace of God. It is the grace of God that that Paul does what he does. This isn't harsh. This is God's grace taking Peter and saying, Peter, I love you enough that I'm going to correct you and, and not let you continue down this path of disfellowshipping these people. And it is the grace of God that kindly corrects us. And so as you're sitting here, maybe you're thinking about some things as I'm asking you some questions. It is the grace of God that urges you to say, God, I'm forgive me of that. Help me to, help me to be the person that walks by your spirit, consistent with the gospel. May we be people who preserve the truth of the gospel, Jesus plus nothing, and who practice the truth of the gospel consistently. Let's pray. Father thank you for your grace. Thank you that when we look at Peter and and we are we are at all tempted to think poorly of him, we suddenly feel that there's a mirror because we can we can certainly see times when we have been amongst others and and we've conveyed messages that are short of the gospel that maybe even undermine the gospel by the things we've been entertained by the things we've done, said. Lord, we we think of the very issue that's going on in this situation of the the ethnic differences between Jews and Gentiles and just the inherent sin that it was for Peter to, to take a group who essentially, by their ethnicity, he wanted nothing to do with. Father, we are broken that even within the church there are instances of that very sin, of that very disfellowship. We are called to be a body of believers who, like those apostles embracing Titus and like Paul urging Peter to say, we are brothers and sisters in Christ us to enjoy that sweet fellowship together, but also help us to see those areas where we are struggling with consistency and whether or not we are walking according, keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. Father, I pray that if there's anybody listening this morning who is, who's tried to add something to Jesus, who's trying to earn your approval in some way, I pray that that you would graciously open their eyes to see that Jesus has accomplished all in In his death and resurrection, he has defeated sin and death and provides forgiveness through that. There is freedom in Christ, not a bondage to a set of rules. Thank you, Father, for all here, brothers and sisters who are trusting in Christ. Thank you for the sweet freedom we have, the privilege we have to sing praises, to to worship, to have glad hearts, to give, to serve one another, to, to do the things we do as a body of believers because... You've saved us, not to try to get you to save us. What a privilege we have. Thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.